Section 34. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 34. Chapter 6. Continued. The Revolution and the Catholic Church. Now that material and temporal organization offered at the very beginning of the debates an opportunity for attack which no other department of the old regime could show. The immediate peril of the state was financial. The pretext, and even to some extent, the motive for the calling of the state's general was the necessity for finding money. The old fiscal machinery had broken down, and as always happens when a fiscal machine breaks down, the hardship it involved and the pressure upon individuals which it involved appeared to be universal. There was no immediate and easily available fund of wealth upon which the executive could lay hands save the wealth of the clergy. Feudal dues of the nobles, if abandoned, must fall rather to the peasantry than to the state. Of the existing taxes, few could be increased without peril, and none with any prospect of a large additional revenue. The charge for debt alone was one-half of the total receipts of the state. The deficit was in proportion to the revenue overwhelming. Face to face with that, you had an institution not popular, one whose public functions were followed by but a small proportion of the population, one in which income was most unequally distributed, and one whose feudal property yielded in dues an amount equal to more than a quarter of the total revenue of the state. Add to this a system of tithes which produced nearly as much again, and it will be apparent under what a financial temptation the assembly lay. It may be argued, of course, that the right of the church to this ecclesiastical property, whether in land or in titles, was absolute, and that the confiscation of the one or of the other form of revenue was mere theft. But such was not the legal conception of the moment. The wealth of the church was not even, and this is most remarkable, defended as absolute property by the generality of those who enjoyed it. The tone of the debates which suppressed the tithes, and later confiscated the church lands, was a tone of discussion upon legal points precedence, public utility, and so forth. There was not heard in it, in any effective degree, the assertion of mere moral right, though in that time the moral rights of property were among the first of political doctrines. It was not, however, the confiscation of the church lands and the suppression of the tithe which founded the quarrel between the revolution and the clergy. No financial or economic change is ever more than a preparation for or a permissive condition of a moral change. It is never the cause of the moral change. Even the suppression of the religious houses in the beginning of 1790 must not be taken as the point of departure in the great quarrel. The religious orders in France were, at that moment, too decayed in zeal and in numbers, too wealthy and much too removed from the life of the nation for this to be the case. The true historical point of departure from which we must date the beginning of this profound debate between the Revolution and Catholicism is to be found in the morning of the 30th of May, 1790, when a parliamentary committee, the Ecclesiastical Committee, 
presented to the house its plan for the reform of the constitution of the church in gaul the enormity of that act is now apparent to the whole world the proposal at the bidding of chance representatives not elected ad hoc to change the diocese and the sees of catholic france the decision of an ephemeral political body to limit to such and such ties and very feeble they were the bond between the church of france and the holy see the suppression of the cathedral chapters the seemingly farcical proposal that bishops should be elected nay priests also thus chosen the submission of the hierarchy in the matter of the residence and travel to a civil authority which openly declared itself indifferent in matters of religion all this bewilders the modern mind how we ask could men so learned so enthusiastic so laborious and so closely in touch with all the realities of their time make a blunder of that magnitude much more how did such a blunder escape the damnation of universal mockery and immediate impotence the answer is to be discovered in what has just been laid down with so much insistence the temporary eclipse of religion in france before the revolution broke out the men who framed the constitution of the clergy the men who voted for it nay even the men who argued against it all had at the back of their minds three conceptions which they were attempting to reconcile of those three conceptions one was wholly wrong one was imperfect because superficial and the third alone was true and these three conceptions were first that the catholic church was a moribund superstition secondly that it possessed in its organization and traditions a power to be reckoned with and thirdly that the state its organs and their corporate inheritance of action were so bound up with the catholic church that it was impossible to effect any general political settlement in which that body both external to france and internal should be neglected of these three conceptions had the first been as true as the last it would have saved the constitution of the clergy and the reputation for common sense of those who framed it it was certainly true that catholicism had for so many centuries been bound up in the framework of the state that the parliament must therefore do something with the church in the general settlement of the nation it could not merely leave the church on one side it was also superficially true that the church was a power to be reckoned with politically quite apart from the traditional union of church and state but only superficially true what the revolutionary politicians feared was the intrigue of those who commanded the organization of the catholic church men whom they knew for the most part to be without religion and the sincerity of all of whom they naturally doubted a less superficial and more solid judgment of the matter would have discovered that the real danger lay in the animosity or intrigue against the civil constitution not of the corrupt hierarchy but of the sincere though ill-instructed and dwindling minority which was still loyally attached to the doctrines and discipline of the church but even this superficial judgment would not have been fatal had not the judgment of the national assembly been actually erroneous upon the first point the vitality of the faith had the catholic church been as nearly all educated men then imagined a moribund superstition 
Had the phase of decline through which it was passing been a phase comparable to that through which other religions have passed in their last moments, had it been supported by ancient families from mere tradition, clung to by remote peasants from mere ignorance and isolation, abandoned as it was in towns simply because the towns had better opportunities of intellectual enlightenment and of acquiring elementary knowledge in history and the sciences, had, in a word, the imaginary picture which these men drew in their minds of the Catholic Church and its fortunes been an exact one, then the civil constitution of the clergy would have been a statesmanlike act. It would have permitted the hold of the Catholic Church upon such districts as it still retained to vanish slowly and without shock. It proposed to keep alive at a reasonable salary the ministers of a ritual which would presumably have lost all vitality before the last of its pensioners was dead. It would have prepared a bed, as it were, upon which the last of Catholicism in Gaul could peacefully pass away. The action of the politicians in framing the Constitution would have seemed more generous with every passing decade, and their wisdom in avoiding offence to the few who still remained faithful would have been increasingly applauded. On the other hand, and from the point of view of the statesman, the civil constitution of the clergy, bound strictly to the state, and made responsible to it those ancient functions not yet dead of the episcopacy and all its train. It was a wise and a just consideration on the part of the assembly that religions retain their machinery long after they are dead, and if that machinery has ever been a state machinery, it must remain subject to the control of the state, and subject not only up to the moment when the living force which once animated it has fled, but much longer, up indeed to the moment when the surviving institutions of the dead religion break down and perish. So argued the National Assembly and its committee, and I repeat the argument was just and statesmanlike, prudent and full of foresight, save for one miscalculation. The Catholic Church was not dead, and it was not even dying. It was exhibiting many of the symptoms which in other organisms and institutions correspond to the approach of death, but the Catholic Church is an organism and an institution quite unlike any other. It fructifies and expands immediately under the touch of a lethal weapon. It has at its very roots the conception that material prosperity is stifling to it poverty and misfortune nutritious the end of section thirty four